Monorepos are contrary to how many of us have been taught to use source control. To start a project or app, the first thing we do is create a Git repository for it. This leads to many focused and small repositories. A quick check on my GitHub account shows that I have 179 non-fork repositories. That's a lot, but I think many of us work that way. It's not like this with monorepos. With monorepos, you create one or a couple of repositories for your entire company. This might have hundreds or thousands of employees working on multiple projects within a single repository. Famously, Google, Meta, Microsoft, and Airbnb, amongst others, all employ very large monorepos with varying strategies for coordination. On this episode, we have David Vijek here to give us his perspective on monorepos, as well as highlight an architectural pattern and set of tools for accomplishing this in Python. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 399, recorded January 13th, 2023. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Mastodon, where I'm at mkennedy, and follow the podcast using at TalkPython, both on bostodon.org. Be careful with impersonating accounts on other instances. There are many. Keep up with the show and listen to over seven years of past episodes at talkpython.fm. We've started streaming most of our episodes live on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel over at talkpython.fm slash YouTube to get notified about upcoming shows and be part of that episode. This episode is brought to you by Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. Get early stage support for your startup without the requirement to be VC-backed or verified at talkpython.fm slash Founders Hub. It's also brought to you by Brilliant.org. Stay on top of technology and raise your value to employers or just learn something fun in STEM at brilliant.org. Visit talkpython.fm slash brilliant to get 20% off an annual premium subscription. David, welcome to Talk Python to Me. Thank you. I'm really glad to be uh, on the podcast. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. And we get to talk about a couple of interesting ideas. We get to talk about software architecture. People may know I'm a big fan of architecture. I think putting your software together right makes all the difference. We're going to talk about some ideas that are new to me, this polylith idea that you're an advocate and fan of and how it applies to Python. And we're also going to focus a good portion of this conversation on monorepos and what the heck are monorepos, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That'll be a lot of fun and I'm really looking forward to it, but let's hear your story first. How did you get into programming and Python? Yeah. How did I get into programming? Well, um... So I guess it was when I was a kid and my dad bought me Commodore 64. It was like way back in the 1980s. So that's when I started learning uh, basic, the basic programming language and how to like think and how to uh, write things, things that are code and not the, like pure text. And, um, but then I kind of, uh, I went on a different path. I went, was working with, uh, mostly with design and things like that. And the first thing what I knew wasn't, uh, was a, the job in our business was a web designer. So that was uh, uh, what I wanted to be at first. So I started to learn uh -huh. JavaScript and copy and pasted some snippets of code in, on the internet and stuff like that. Yeah, and that's the era. I'm, I'm just guessing from the, the starting computer where you were sort yeah. of in time when the, this must have happened. And that, that was probably 
before all these crazy JavaScript front end frameworks and all that. And it was, it was more of a, how do you visually design this page with graphic and more art and and more focused on that, right? Yeah. Before like jQuery and before like all these, uh, all uh, React and all all of that good stuff that we have today. So yeah. And with Python, I think I started about uh, 2015 with Python. I started with Python 2.7 and then uh, learning um, all, I think in that uh, period, I also learned, started to think in more like functional programming style, more like functional-ish. Yeah. And that's uh, coming from Python, actually. And I was very much into Node.js by the, at that time, too. So I think around 2015, and I've been like jumping back and forth between different, different languages. Mm-hmm. I'm a really huge fan of Clojure, too, which is uh, like 100% functional. So I've been like... Uh, Visiting uh, some different uh, kinds of programming languages and styles uh, and things like that, like that. And now I'm back to full-time Python on, on my day job and of almost full-time Python during nights because I really love to code uh, on my spare time too. When, when uh, as soon as there is uh, any chance to, uh, to code, so I'll take that one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, how much of open source is... There's programmers and we have this project we got to work on, but we really want to build this other thing and we're super passionate about it. We just end up building it and sharing it and it it takes off, you know, and I think that's a very common story for sure. So before we move on, how has working in Python influenced something like Clojure or Clojure influenced your Python thinking? They're they're fairly different languages, right? Yeah. Functional being less stateful, which is a, a really big different way of programming. Yeah. Well, I think what I learned from Python was like the elegance and uh, the importance of, of writing uh, uh, elegant and simplistic code. I was really uh, impressed by the Zen of Python. You know, if you type import this in, in our shell, you get uh, this uh, nice list of how to write your code. I really liked that uh, idea. So, so I guess that's where I started to think about keeping it simple, clean, and short. Yeah. And with Clojure, it was like, uh, uh, that's kind of a different, total different syn- syntax, but uh, also digging into a lot of functional aspects and how to think about state, how to separate the uh, like calculations from actions and data and things like that. And I think I brought a lot of those ideas to back to when I'm back at, at Python, how to separate different kinds of, of code that you write. Yeah, I can see that. I feel like Python's really interesting because you can choose to only focus on little parts of it. That's good for beginners because they only have to learn a little part, but it's also good for people who have particular styles that they like to work, right? If you want to write functional Python, you don't have to create any global variables or any classes or any, you can just, just you can write it that way, but you could completely go really deep OO patterns and can do that in Python too, if you want, right? It's, it's completely up to you. Yeah. And I like that kind of freedom. It's, um, you can't, you don't, you're not, um, forced to do either this or that you, you can learn and experience experiment. And especially when you, if you use libraries, they are like designed in different uh, ways too. So you can, you don't have to limit yourself to only use that kind of library or this kind of library. So. I really like Python, the capabilities of Python when it comes to that, but yeah. it's not very strict in any kind of format. I like that too. And 
I think other languages are seeing that and adopting that as well. You know, you see Swift with their playgrounds and well, Swift in general and .NET with their, you know, maybe we don't need namespaces and classes and static main void for everything to get started. And they're adopting those types of things. You know, we're talking about this, like, well, functional people might want to write this way and more OO-oriented people that way, but that also could just be you in different situations, you know right now, this is the right tool to solve it. And other times, here's a, a different way to solve the, a different problem. But you can just stay in the same tools and the same editors and the same ecosystem. It's cool. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, let's start in on the first half of our, our main topic here is the mono repo. Now, yeah. it's really easy to confuse what a mono repo is with a monolith versus say microservices. Yeah. Those are not really at all the same thing. In fact, they might actually be opposites in a sense, a mono repo and a monolith <laughs> to some degree. So maybe kick us off by telling us what is a mono repo here? A mono repo is I don't think it's that uh, complicated, but I, I actually all also before I started to dig into this thing more, I also had almost put like an equal sign between monolith and mono repo because that's the way I have used uh, writing code. I was in, in, in the .NET and C Sharp world a lot, and you like building your website, and you have a data layer, and and you have a domain layer, and everything was in a repo. So, so I guess um, microservice was like a reaction to that to to separate the code into isolated environments, and you can have this nice and clean little code base. Um, and you have uh, that does one thing, and you have this other code, code base that does the, a different thing. So if instead of just having the user authentication bit completely just woven into the code, we can make a little API that we call over JSON that, that does the authentication. And then here's the one that has the catalog. Yeah. And we could write just a little bit of code. And you know the I guess the benefit, right, is that whoever's working on the catalog bit, they theoretically can just stay focused on that little bit of code and not the entire system, right? Yeah. For, with a microservice story. Yeah. A monorepo is, I think, is to me, from the way I see it, it's like um, it's a Git, uh, Git or any uh, version control repo that has basically all of your code in the same repo, same repository. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's one program or one app that you are going to build or, or compile into. You can have several projects or artifacts in, in that repo. And that, I guess that's why it's called monorepo, because you can have multiple things in, in, in it. So, yeah. so I guess that's the difference between a monolith where you have, where you actually build one app and, and deploy it to one place. Yeah. From, right, from, right. From the, uh, the monolith is the opposite of the microservice style. Yeah. Whereas the monorepo is just a way of organizing your, your code and sharing how do you propagate changes, look at dependencies across either libraries or there are companies that take this really far, like crazy, crazy far. Like Google and Facebook, I believe, haven't worked on it, but I hear that they have one repo. Yeah, for like all, all of it. Like, what one really? Just like, what's the checkout story look like on that? And it has to be a lot of code. Yeah, it's got to be a lot of code. I believe Google. I'm probably going to misassociate this, but I think Google uses Bazel, and there, there's different tools that allow them that are kind of not just Git, but something that can handle you know that scale of code. So it really 
when I think about organizing organizing my code, it's either me or me and a couple of people working on the code, and it's it's pretty contained. But when you start to think about hundreds or thousands of people across projects, it starts to get really wild, right? Yeah, that has to be a di- completely diff- different uh, story. But you really come to see how they how they do how how they work in the teams. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe we could talk about uh, some of the, you know, why, <laughs> if you're not doing this, you know, why would you do that? Like, it seems, you know, you, you highlighted that there's kind of these, these two trends that you saw out there in some of your articles. And we'll, we'll talk about the articles and, and link to them. You talked about seeing a trend of more people trending towards this monorepo and more people or other, other groups of people trending towards having more small repos yeah for, for you take my little microservice example the user access service might be its own repository separate from the catalog service whereas others might say we're going to put all that together and all the utilities and that other data reporting project and all of that goes into one giant repo even though there's a big team on it right yeah well i think in the, from the, from my experience what i've seen uh, joining different teams and different companies that I've seen exactly that some uh, quite recently that uh, I joined the team at a company with several teams and they actually migrated from a monorepo to several uh, repositories and, and it was part of their microservice journey as, as uh, they call it because uh, they had uh, one repo with all their code but that code base was so difficult to work with. So they kind of wanted to extract one app at a time into a separate repository to just to be able to deploy that one and work with mm-hmm. it uh, in a reasonable way with your with tooling support and uh, things like that. So before that, I was at a different company uh, joining a different team and we went the total opposite way. We had uh, a couple of microservices uh, that the that, that uh, we were quite easy to work with, but we, we identified issues or problems with it because you s- maybe there's one service that has outdated uh, dependencies or the biggest problem was the actual code duplication because we had one service that uh, we had developed one thing for and we had another service that we needed code that was very much like the, the thing we had in that in that uh, other service. So I guess the solution could be to extract that one into to a library, but then you have three repositories. And yeah. I guess there's difficult to find that good balance between one or the other. I agree. And that extracting, I mean, that's certainly one of, of the possibilities. As you say, well... We're going to, you know what, we now have a third repository and we have the, the share, the data access repository and package. And, you know, that's probably not the type of thing you publish to PyPI, but it's very likely something you would publish to some kind of internal dependency artifact system that you would depend upon, right? But the problem is, if it's used in just these two places, it's, and it sounds like that sort of description, the kind of the team... Is probably working on both sides of, of those microservices and they understand the, the the broader system. But as it grows and more people depend upon it, it's harder to understand this little standalone project. Who is using it in what ways are they completely, can we make a change here if we refactor this? <laughs> Who do we talk to about 
changing even just the signature of a function? How do we reach out to the other parts of code or other stakeholders and say, look, we need to change this function, but <laughs> we, we got to, you know, we're changing the data model and you're going to have to figure out how to, to go along. On the other hand, if all of those projects were together in a giant mono repo, you, we have tooling that understands, well, what functions call this function or what thing imports this class or who is using it? Is it used at all? Actually, maybe you could delete it. it you thought someone was using it and no one's using it, right? There's, there's a lot of understanding of the broader integration if it's all there with you, right? Definitely. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. Starting a business is hard. By some estimates, over 90% of startups will go out of business in just their first year. With that in mind, Microsoft for Startups set out to understand what startups need to be successful and to create a digital platform to help them overcome those challenges. Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub was born. Founders Hub provides all founders at any stage with free resources to solve their startup challenges. The platform provides technology benefits, access to expert guidance and skilled resources, mentorship and networking connections, and much more. Unlike others in the industry, Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub doesn't require startups to be investor-backed or third-party validated to participate. Founders Hub is truly open to all. So what do you get if you join them? You speed up your development with free access to GitHub and Microsoft Cloud Computing Resources and the ability to unlock more credits over time. To help your startup innovate, Founders Hub is partnering with innovative companies like OpenAI, a global leader in AI research and development, to provide exclusive benefits and discounts. Through Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub, becoming a founder is no longer about who you know. You'll have access to their mentorship network, giving you a pool of hundreds of mentors across a range of disciplines and areas like idea validation, fundraising, management and coaching, sales and marketing, as well as specific technical stress points. You'll be able to book a one-on-one -on -one meeting with the mentors, many of whom are former founders themselves. Make your idea a reality today with the critical support you'll get from Founders Hub. To join the program, just visit talkpython.fm slash Founders Hub, all one word. The link's in your show notes. Thank you to Microsoft for supporting the show. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and our editors are so smart and they can, can find you suggest and if you uh, this function signature isn't really correct and stuff like that. And that's uh, so much easier when you have your source code in, in, in a folder that is like right next to, to the one using it. So that's a huge benefit, like editor-wise to the, uh, the developer experience, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of, this is both a benefit and a challenge, you know, I'll, I'll maybe link to the Mono Repo Wikipedia page and it says, here are some of the advantages. One of the, the number one advantage list is ease of code reuse. So it's possible, not necessarily suggested, but possible that you say, well, the data access functions and classes that we need on this side, we need some of them over here. But if you have the whole Mono Repo, you could just say, well, import them in both projects and deploy you know, a larger piece of code to your server, but who cares? The servers have a lot of storage and they'll be fine, right? Yeah. The challenge, I think, is going to be the, the you're going to end up with a tightly coupled architecture pretty badly if, if you just say, well, I see way over there, there's that file and that's the one I want and we're just going to grab that. And, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily encourage good behavior, but it does make 
reusing code and understand how it's being used easy, right? Yeah, and also you have, you're like in the risk zone of actually building a monolith again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're just part of the part of the API endpoints run there and part of the API endpoints run there, but they're, they're effectively just one giant thing, right? <laughs> so I guess what I think is that if you are using a, a monolith, if you want to have your code in a monorepo, I guess you would need some sort of tooling or, or ideas about how to separate your code into, se into separate artifacts that don't have the entire code base in its package, only the, the, the code that is actually needed for, for this artifact. So again, I guess that's, that's part of the challenge, uh, having a monorepo. I would say so. I, I've been thinking about this a little bit leading up to our conversation today and Certainly, you can use packages in the, you know, we have this problem in Python or this challenge where packages mean different things, but it has the same word. <laughs> so a package could be just a grouping of modules into a directory that has a dunder init, or it could be something on PyPI that you ship and you deploy and you version on its own. And I mean in just the on-disk the dunder init sort of yeah. local grouping, right? So you could create these these sort of groups within your mono repo and say we're going to import that, but have a little bit of a formal separation and and say look, we're not necessarily going to deploy it through some versioning story and let other people pull it in because then we lose track of who's using it, and how they're using it, are they on the right version? But we'll still maybe think of them as a Python package in a sense. Do you have any experience with doing it, doing it one way or the other? Any preference? Yeah. What I was thinking uh, of um, from the company that I joined that were uh, migrating from their mo uh, monorepo, they had uh, done a couple of attempts to do this code sharing thing with the likes, I think it was like Git submodules or, or symlinks yes. and things like that. But, but all of that uh, ended up into in it was became too complicated to uh, to understand what was going on and and i think even the editor support were, were wasn't really really perfect when you had like uh, these kind of uh, dynamic uh, linking so I, I guess that's that's why they they chose to to abandon that idea yeah it sounds a little bit like with the the sub modules that it was not a a pure mono repo but kind of a let's have different sections on on our repository, but bring it together when we see it for development as if it was a mono repo, mm -hmm. right? Like we're gonna sort of put these files and it, this is a, a sub-module, that's a sub-module and they're kind of separate, but then once they're all checked out and, and linked up, then our tool thinks of it as one giant thing like the mono repo would be, right? Yeah. So it's kind of a, an intermediate. I also thought about this as well, like maybe, Maybe you could put together the Git tools like that. I do want to highlight a couple of Git tools because maybe I'll, I'll take a, a quick bit of audience feedback real quick. But I do think that, you know, when it's five people, 10 people, you just check the thing out and it's, it's going to be fine. But as it gets larger and larger, both over time and lines of code and number of people, it's, it's going to be a thing where it almost becomes unmanageable to just do a, a Git clone URL and see what happens, right? You can go grab grab yeah, a coffee, and when he got back, it's not uh, have, hasn't downloaded. Yeah. We've probably seen that XKCD where there's 
people like fake sword fighting on a chair. They're like, get back to work. Like, <laughs> you know, we're doing to get clone. Leave us alone. <laughs> oh, okay, sure, fine. <laughs> gotcha. It's going to be a while. Quick bit of audience feedback says, monorepos are okay if you have a dedicated team that manages the advanced tooling required to deal with them. Yeah, absolutely. And a sort of related, Lucas asked, like, would you use Bazel for your projects or rather have make files or similar um, in case of lints and builds? So, yeah, there's the different tools that like Facebook and Google and those folks use. There's also Pants. Benji Weinberger has talked a lot about it. He's, I've had him on the show before. And, and Pants is one of these tools that can kind of help uh, Pants build. But David, how about you? Like, what, did, what were you all using in terms of more advanced tooling or was there any? Anything special? Back then, uh, it was not, no, not really more advanced than, than actually make files to make things uh, happen. But uh, the other, the place, the team that I joined uh, actually started to use uh, this, uh, I guess we're going to talk about it in the architecture called Polylith. Uh, and there's also tooling uh, support yeah. that, can, that kind of offers uh, a solution to, to many of these uh, headaches with, with having a, a monorepo. <laughs> And so, yeah, absolutely. And back then it was uh, because Polylith is uh, originates from from Clojure, so we were actually writing Clojure code. And and uh, for for Python, I I was uh, started to look around for solution. I actually uh, read read a little bit about Pants. I, I found thought think that can uh, solve a lot of problems too. It seems like a really uh, a great tool with a lot of uh, useful, useful uh, functionality. And then, there, then there's also poetry. I don't think they don't, it's not really, it's not really about monorepos, but you can, I believe that you can use pure poetry and have your dependencies, like the third party libraries, your own or, or the one at PyPy in sort of an, um, ed, not the third party, but your own in, in an editable mode. So they will. So as soon as you change something, it will be updated. So I guess there are some tools that can uh, help you along the way, but I guess there's still a lot of frustration with having that smooth and really joyful monorepo experience that you would like to have. So that's what led me to, to, to start working on, on this project. I do think that Python, the way that its dependencies and its understanding of linking you know, files together, but through directories and things like that makes it a little bit more challenging than other systems. Like if I was doing C++, I could open up Visual Studio Code and create a, a broader, broader project and say, these three libraries are what I want to see as my project. And it doesn't really matter where they come from. You build it and they link together and there's sort of a build the delta only type of thing. Whereas in Python, you kind of need to, need to bring on a little bit more tooling to say, I know it looks like there's some giant Python thing here, but just these two pieces. That's what I want to think of as the thing, you know? Yeah. What we're going to talk about with some of the stuff that you've done with poetry, with Polylith and others, certainly make that relevant. I do want to talk about the Git tools, but it's also interesting, this comment from David Poole, it says, we use submodules for legal licensing reasons. That is, oh. to have GPL code separate from our proprietary code, proprietary code, rather than just dropping it in, which obviously has different implications. Oh, that was very interesting to learn about. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about that either, but yes, you definitely, definitely want to think about it. So let's just talk Git for a moment. Now, one of the big challenges is if we're going to put this all into one giant GitHub repository, 
which I hinted at, it, it could get really large, <laughs> uh, especially if you put binary files, like some of your build tooling or other assets, you might put it in there and then that makes it extra tricky. The less something can diff, the more it kind of piles up quick. As I was thinking about this thing, I learned about a couple cool ideas. Let's, let's talk about this one first. Partial clone. This is something that was totally new to me. So normally it's git clone, the URL to the git repository. However, you can say things like filter dash dash filter equals blob. Have you seen this before, David? No, this is uh, totally new to me. So, but it looks really interesting. Yeah. So what happens here is if you, the blob is like a binary file, right? And what you're saying when you say filter blob is it'll check out all of the Git history. And normally when you do a clone, you get, at least for the branch you're on, you get every version of the file. So you Git clone, you disconnect from the network and you've got everything, right? Which is the beauty of Git. But if you've got a real huge repository, it also might be the drawback of Git. <laughs> so you can filter out these blobs in the historical sense. And if you say this, what you see in your hard drive for the working directory is identical, but the .git folder with the history only has the working version, not all copies of the history of the blob. This has like a really huge effect. So I did this on TalkPython training my courses website. And if I just say git clone, the repo, it pulled down 118,000 objects. It resolved 71,000 deltas and it updated 10,000 files and it was a gig on disk. If I just say filter dash dash filter equals blob colon none, it goes from 118,000 to 10,000 downloads. It, go, it goes from, it's less than half the size and the resulting um, files on disks, those were the same, but the, the intermediate deltas were like 170th or 150th. It, really a big difference. And this is, you know, it's a pretty old repo. It's got a lot of stuff. It's nothing compared to what a lot of people have. So one, there's one problem where like, okay, well, if I'm going to try to get clone a, a mono repo, there's just no way, right? So link adding this aspect here, I think actually would be really valuable. Yeah, definitely. Because it's, uh, I guess in the normal, the use case is that you want to work with the latest version of the source code. You want to develop something new. So I guess that's right. what you want there on disk. So it makes, yeah, it makes most a lot of the of time. And what happens is if you say, well, actually we need to switch branches or we need to go back three months in time, it just goes back to the network and, and clones a little bit more. It's like an incremental clone as it needs it. So I think actually this, this would help a lot of people who don't know about it, working with mono repos that turn out to have a lot of files and a lot of historical, especially binaries that grow over time. Yeah. Because those, those are the ones that are huge, you know, it's not the text files usually that are the problem. So I have to bookmark this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Brilliant.org. You're a curious person who loves to learn about technology. I know because you're listening to my show. That's why you would also be interested in this episode's sponsor, Brilliant.org. Brilliant.org is entertaining, engaging, and effective. If you're like me and feel that binging yet another sitcom series is kind of missing out on life, then how about spending 30 minutes a day getting better at programming or deepening your knowledge and foundations of topics you've always wanted to learn better like chemistry or biology over on Brilliant. Brilliant has thousands of lessons, from foundational and advanced math to data science, algorithms, neural networks, and more, with new lessons added monthly. 
When you sign up for a free trial, they ask a couple of questions about what you're interested in as well as your background knowledge. Then you're presented with a cool learning path to get you started right where you should be. Personally, I'm going back to some science foundations. I love chemistry and physics, but haven't touched them for 20 years. So I'm looking forward to playing with PV equals NRT, you know, the ideal gas law, and all the other foundations of our world. With Brilliant, you'll get hands-on on a whole universe of concepts in math, science, computer science, and solve fun problems while growing your critical thinking skills. Of course, you could just visit brilliant.org directly. Its URL is right there in the name, isn't it? But please use our link because you'll get something extra, 20% off an annual premium subscription. So sign up today at talkpython.fm slash brilliant and start a seven-day free trial. That's talkpython.fm slash brilliant. The link is in your podcast player show notes. Thank you to brilliant.org for supporting the show. Related to that, so quirky ads, wouldn't a shallow clone be more predictable? So this is also interesting. So shallow clones is a older way to do this in Git and in, in GitHub. The problem is with shallow clones, you don't get the full history and change log. With these partial clones, you have all of the history, commit history and details. You just don't have the files and they're incrementally pulled in. So you could do a shallow clone. And then there's another one. What was it called? Uh, a sparse clone. So a sparse clone is another tool that you can bring in here for advanced Git usage where you say, I know I've got this huge directory structure, but I just want to get these three directories or this subdirectory structure and you clone only part of the files, right? So we were talking about how Python understands just like the whole thing as one giant project and maybe even you check it out and try to open it your editor will just sit there indexing, indexing, and you know, autocomplete won't really work and you know very well and go crazy. So you can just say, I want these three directories and I want them partially cloned so they only have like the recent history and they're not so insane. And you can kind of combine these to get really focused views into a monorepo, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah. So anyway, when when I think back to the story you told about how you guys were using submodules. I kind of feel like these partial clones plus sparse clones might be a better fit than trying to, you know, symlink things together. Because really, just in Git, it just is the same thing. If you want to clone the whole thing, you do. But then you can kind of just, as you clone it, filter out. And you can also, with those sparse clones, you can retroactively add in. You go, oh, I also need that directory. You can say, like, get sparse add. Oh, cool. this now need this piece to come in as well. And there's some interesting ways to put these together. So I think these tools are going to be, for people who are working with mono repos, I think those advanced Git features that I called out might be really helpful. What do you think, David? Yeah, totally agree. Especially when you have a mono repo that is a lot of code. So it seems like this is, uh, you wouldn't uh, live with, want to live with, without it, I guess, because it's probably not helpful. Yeah, I think so too. So sparse checkout, I believe, is actually the sparse checkout. Okay. Yeah. I think sparse checkout is the the term. I'll, I'll link to it as well. It's partial clone and sparse checkout. There we go. <laughs> nice. Okay. Yeah, there's so many cool. good features in Git that I guess most of us don't don't use. Yeah, I think so too. Like I've been doing Git for a really long time, and this sparse checkout is completely new to me. I only learned about it because yes. I was trying to research a little bit more of some like, well, how do you do, do actually manage with these mono repos as we are preparing for our, our chat today? Yeah. So yeah, I think there's a lot 
of tools and flexibility that are not obvious or not apparent that people can use to make mono repos work really, really well. There's still a lot of interesting ways to structure your code and, and put it together and use it once you get it checked out. So maybe let's, where do you want to start? You want to start with a fresh take on mono repos? This is one of your articles? Yeah, yeah, why not? Yeah, yeah. So tell us the story here. Uh, I wrote this article um, about a year ago, almost a year ago. Before that, I was trying to figure out how to uh, work in a, have this nice developer experience in a mono repo. And coming from closure and learn, having, having learned learn new things and have some new fresh ideas on how you can solve solve things. I wanted to give give it a try in in uh, in Python too. So, and also at the same time, I was actually doing work in, in with microservices, but in several repos and I kind of found myself, there was, there was not a, a huge thing, but it was a, like a logger, sort of a logger module or a, or a package. I knew that I have, had done it in, in the other uh, microservice ju just a couple of weeks ago. So, okay, what should I do? Should I create a library? No, this is way too small to create a library. And yeah. it's not, it's not, wasn't even open, open source. It's like a, proprietary um, system. So we would need uh, private uh, repo servers, things like that. So I just ended up in copying some code. And, you know, while people would go, of course, you should never do that. But sometimes it's just not complicated enough or important enough or big enough to justify all the, the change management and dependencies. And you're like, you know what? That file, it goes into this project. And it's... <laughs> It, usually it's fine yeah. until they get out of sync or there's some weird, you want to upgrade one and then, oh, well, where else is it, right? Or, or, or uh, you, you, you discover a bug in, in, in that part and you forget about that you have copied it a couple of times in other, the other repos. So then you <laughs> have a lot of, lot of work to do. There's probably a whole section of cybersecurity history and like breaches where they thought they fixed a problem in some system. Yeah. And it turns out, Someone else found a copy of it that wasn't fixed and broken. And yes, yeah, so this is not ideal. I really wanted to, to give the polylith in Python a try because I really enjoyed the way uh, uh, things are structured and, and a lot of these like headaches uh, uh, are solved there. So, and polylith is really, really new to me. Maybe tell people about polylith before we go on because I, I suspect a lot of people don't know about this. Yeah, maybe we should begin. Yeah, yeah, let's begin there and we'll come back to it. Well, polylith, it's, it's, an, it's an architecture, but it's, it's also a tool or, an, or, or something with a tooling support. And it's open source and it's uh, developed by, by a fellow uh, Swede, Joachim Tengstrand. And I have, uh, was uh, fortunate to, to actually work uh, in, in the same team as him. So he, he was the one in introducing uh, this. We decided to, to, give it a, to give it a try. He was new in our team. team. And I, was, I have to confess, I was a little bit skeptical at the beginning because skeptical of monorepos in, in, in general too, because based on previous bad experiences. <laughs> so but totally this, the main idea is uh, that you have when you write code, you're supposed to, you, you aim to write them in small parts. And that's what it, what Pololith called components. And a component, Pololith uses the idea of Lego, but for code. So a component could be a piece, a brick, a Lego brick that you can reuse in, in several, in several ways. And a component can be everything from a small, like tech. You, something that would you normally would put in a utils folder, like uh, functions that uh, do, do maybe some parsing or something, 
but it can also be a combination of other components. They don't have to be of the same size. It's the idea of composability and reusability that is the important thing. So the big parts of polylith are our components, and then we have something called bases, and that is also a component, but a kind of special kind of component. If, if you think about Lego, if you're going to build like a house, you you often have some a base plate where you put your Lego bricks on it. So a base is, is sort of that part. And in code, that could be like, if you have a, like a fast API app, uh, maybe a base plate could be where you define the endpoints, like you okay, use the uh, API decorator style or something like that. So that could be a, a, a base. And then the code that actually does something could be a combination of different components. Yeah, that's an interesting way to think of it. Yeah. Whenever you talk about stuff, one of the things that's difficult is to understand what is the scale or how are, how are these different? So one way, well, our functions components, our, our modules components, our packages components, like, you know, what are, how do I identify that since it's not, you know, a formal language runtime term? Yeah, you know, that's really, really good. Help me understand how I make, I sort of make these things in Python, yeah. Yeah, yeah that was really interesting because um, you can see a component, it's not a full-blown feature like uh, maybe a library that you publish in on PyPy, uh, PyPy would be. It's smaller than that. And it, I guess it could be a single function, but it's probably one or more functions that kind of relates to it. Let's say that you, um, what should I, should I have I prepared with an example, but let's say that you, you want to parse a CSV uh, file or something. Then I, you would probably separate the different uh, things you want to do with that CSV file into functions already and the component is where you kind of group the functions that kind of relate to each other that are, are that make sense to have in a python package so then i mean uh, a namespace with a dunder in it so yeah, yeah. that could be a component yeah although it could be modeled in one of these sub packages it's those sub packages often have multiple jobs and roles and you're like let's let's stay really focused on the one thing that it does right yeah okay and all of this this lives in a in a uh, what polylith calls a workspace and that is basically uh, a repository with a with a top con what's uh, with a configuration about how your repository looks like so you have your components in namespace packages basically and you have your basis, the entry points of, of your apps. And then you have something called projects or, or a project. And that is the artifacts or artifacts that you want to build. So you can have only one project if you're going to build one thing, maybe a fast API service. But the benefit comes when you are build, about to build something new. Then you have your project infrastructure, like uh, the configura project configuration and uh, what it is defined in the in a in a folder called projects, and then but the code you use you pick the code from the components and bases folder, so you you will reuse the same source code, and then you package it into different artifacts. So it sounds a little bit like we've got this mono repo with all of this stuff, and the polylith is a, its job is to say, well, we're going to look into these these little parts of this monolith and I need this part and this part and this part. 
and it's some tooling and some concepts to help you manage some artifact. You know, not we don't usually have yeah. exact build artifacts often if you're not doing you know shipping out separate packages, but maybe these three pieces here make up the fast API service that we're going to host over there. And maybe these two services make up the data science tools that we're going to give to the data scientists for their notebooks. And that there could be some overlap in those, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And another good thing is with, with the workspace is that you have, you don't really do much work in the project folder or something like that, because the main idea is that you have a developer a development environment that includes all your bases, all your components. So the good thing with that is that you can experiment and try out code without uh, worrying about if you have imported uh, the correct stuff. You, you just you have a top project folder containing all of your dependencies and packages, and then you can take it from there. Once you're ready to build a project, uh, build, build something out of it, an app or whatever it is, then you can start constructing that uh, project-specific uh, configurations. You can you can choose where you want to start, but I usually start from the development workspace, and I really like a way of working called REPL-driven development that I also learned from Closure, which is they try out things in a REPL, basically. Yeah, that's uh, a really nice developer experience that you get from having the entire source source code. You can try out things, combine components, and, and develop new features. Yeah, I'm doing more, more and more of that as well, this Ripple-driven development, or yeah. I'd say not necessarily development, but exploration. Like, it's kind of an understanding. Like, I'm not really sure, is this going to click together right? Or is this, rather than putting a lot of structure in place, because I'm not even sure I really want to stick with it, you know, fire up a Ripple. For those of you who don't know, if you just type Python, what you get, that redevelop print loop, that's the Ripple. I do it in PyCharm these days because PyCharm has a Python console, but it gives you autocomplete and tab completion and like of of the things that are in your project when you're playing in the REPL, but you know, still same idea. Yeah, that's really great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So are you guys using this on your on your projects right now? Or what's what are you doing with it these days? Yeah, I'm fairly new to to the team that I joined. So I, I I'm uh, I've introduced them to the ideas, but they have like already code and stuff in place. So my hopes are that we will give it uh, when once we have something new to develop or or in, include an existing microservice, maybe we could could give it this uh, idea a try. So, so that's basically because I'm so yeah. It's always the problem is even if uh, you yourself are not new, the ideas may be new to you, and you've done a bunch of previous work. Like for me, I was showing you that that repo before. I'm just I'm thinking oh, there's a lot of cool stuff I could do about how I restructure this and reuse it and make it avail. You know, sort of bring more of the mono repo stuff to some of the things I'm doing. Like, then I got to update the continuous deployment changes and I've got to update where the web server, I'm just like, you know, it's just like, there's all this stuff that's there and it's, you know, do you kind of pause what you're doing to try some new big organization of code here? That's how it goes, right? We still learn the polylith. That's where we actually used it in, in production. We had several kinds of different services and, and apps so where we, I've had everything in a in a polylith uh, model repo, but that was Clojure. And Clojure is a compiled language like C plus plus or C sharp, is that right? Yeah, no? it's it's, well, it's on top of the JVM, so okay, so yeah, that is compiled. To, yeah, to through that engine. Yeah, I do feel like things are just a, a little the the deliverable artifacts are slightly more 
obvious and easy to distinguish when you're talking about something that compiles and like, here's the library that drops into the bin folder and here's the, the executable binary that drops, you know, there's an output folder that has all the, the pieces that were selected. Whereas Python, it's, you got to little more careful how you put that together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what I came up to was how can this idea be uh, be used in, in uh, Python? And then that was actually what led me, what led me to to poetry, which I think is a really nice tool, because poetry I think has had a lot has a lot of um, nice ways of handling uh, projects and dependencies and structure and stuff like that. But there were a couple of things uh, missing to make this idea work because. Uh, when you have a project configuration, you actually include components from a relative path. So you navigate up and navigate down to the actual component. And if we would just build a wheel or a source distribution from that, that would be, wouldn't be a valid uh, uh, package because then you would need to ship the entire monorepo structure. And you don't want to, to do that. So what I did was... I developed a plugin to poetry that actually allows for having relative includes and that will build the code that will build a wheel and a source distribution with the kind of correct path. So it takes all the package dependencies and puts them in the same folder, basically, before it does the wheel. And then you have a valid, valid distribution that you can use. So it's a, it does a little bit of copying and, and uh, stuff like that. So, All right. So the actual output here, it's a couple of wheels that we could say pip install into a virtual environment and they, they work together. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. To try this idea with uh, like services, like fast API services, instead of including the, the source to code like as a, as a tree, installing it with... Um, pip you from a wheel or, or a source distribution, preferably be from a wheel if you don't have any like operating system specific stuff. stuff. So, and I think that works really and it's an, like some, the end result, if you do it in, in a Docker container, you, you can like uh, have the full control of what's, what's in there. So, yeah. So in your Docker, Docker file that builds the Docker image, you can just say, you know, copy these three wheels over, pip install them into my my Python environment I have over there, and it's just taken the, what do you call them, workspaces that they need over there. The What is the terminology that you call the artifacts here? I mean, I know they're wheels and packages, but is there a polylith term that, that matches over oh, here? Oh, I don't think so. Maybe it's a, like a built artifact, um, perhaps. Yeah. And it's probably the most simplistic scenario is, is that you have... Uh, like an app, like a, a, an API endpoint, or maybe a, a CLI uh, app, or even a library. Probably, and you probably want to install them in different places, maybe you, or even on AWS Lambda. So, so you can con have the control of the, over the deployment in your CI, saying that I want to deploy this Lambda here, and I want to deploy this fast API over there. So, and with Followlift, you can, you can build these uh, wheels differently. Nice. Yeah. I feel like the, if you think of microservices the, and monolith, the AWS Lambda or any fun serverless functions as a service story is like the most extreme version of this. Like, yeah. Here's a single function that gets deployed. Here's a single function that gets deployed, like just one after another, right? It's, it's kind of out of control. 
and you have the, all of them in separate repositories. Yep. Oh, please, no. <laughs> yes, that would be definitely tricky. So I want to come back and talk more about this poetry plugin because it's really cool. But let's address this question from Lucas here. This is, how would you approach versioning in a, a mono repo? Like a, of these different services and of the different pieces. Mm. So if I'm going to have that fast API thing that builds over there, and I'm going to have some other projects that are built with some overlap that are shared over to say my data science team, they're going to analyze data in some other way, but reuse some of the, the code. I've got some thoughts, but what are your thoughts on versioning say in the repository or how you deploy them? Yeah, that's a really good question. If I'm looking at it from a, a polylith uh, perspective, I would suggest a very simplistic solution. So let's say that you have your, this project depends on something with this version and the the other project is still on, on an earlier version. And I think that can be solved with the components itself because all source code is com com made up of all these components. So if you're going to build a new version of something, and if that version uses a new third-party dependency or that is incompatible, I would suggest you to, you to add it as a new separate component. So your new project that will use that one will pick that component instead of, of the old. I think it's a good practice if these uh, components have the same or as, it, as long as it's possible, the same API. So it should be easy to switch from the old to, to the new one. So that would be my solution to, to versioning in uh, at least when using, using polylith. If we look at not the mono repo style, but you build, you build an artifact like a wheel from one repo and you, you put it up there and someone else depends upon that, maybe through an internal artifact management, private PyPI, you would pin your version in the requirements file for that other one, right? Because that repo is changing at a different rate and a different cadence than maybe the, the library that it depends upon. And that's really natural for us as Python people because we already have a great long list of things that are open source that we don't build that we depend on, right? Fast API, Pydantic, and Starlet would be an example from what we've been talking, right? Those things you don't control and you, got, you depend on them. So you pin the versions and upgrade them as you see fit. But one of the advantages of the mono repo, to me, as far as I see it at least, is the whole system, not just your part of the system, but the whole system is consistent all the time on the main branch or the production branch or whatever the thing, the shipping branch is. So I think you would maybe branch, do some of your work, merge that back in. And at that point, you could ship everything if, if you need to, right? Yeah. Because you're continuously keeping it together as a whole system, not like, well, that library built and that library built because they're separate repos, but you put them together and who knows what's going to happen. It's, I think this is an advantage of the mono repo in a sense. Yeah, me too. Definitely. I think it makes it easier to notice about using um, some parts of the code is using a uh, certain version of a dependency. You will learn about it quite quickly because if you would install it and try to run the code, so it's easier to notify and hopefully it will, it's easier to also update that code. But if you are in a situation yeah. where, well, there's so much code that you need to refactor, maybe there's a breaking change that kind of um, has re thought the entire idea of that happens, maybe you need to do some sort of 
separation and keep the oldest until you have the time to refactor that. But uh, yeah, I guess in most cases, it, it's a st pretty straight, straightforward to update just everything in the model repo. All right. Yeah, exactly. And if you've got some sort of continuous integration or, or some kind of automated check, you're going to find out pretty quickly this change you made has a consequence over there. And I think that's why people yeah. are really, you know, people who are psyched about monorepos are excited about it. It also feels to me like if there was going to be a breaking change, it's going to happen either way. It's just, is it going to happen in small little pieces or is it going to happen in one terrible, huge, oh, you got the new one? Well, let me tell you, the new one's really different. It doesn't work anymore. Like, oh no. You know, just like you want to merge more often <laughs> or you want to try to integrate things more often and not just wait some long period of time and go, now do they go together? Why are there a hundred or thousand, you know, merge conflicts? I don't know, right? Like the more you do these little continuous checkbacks and integrations, it's just going to be so much easier. Oh, yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. I mean, the only scenario where you don't have to go back and pay that penalty is where the other service that you're versioning against says, we're never going to go to the new version. And if this is internal code, it's it's unlikely that it's never going to go to the new version unless it becomes just dead and then who cares? You're going to need to integrate them eventually. Just keep doing it continuously. So yeah, I'm starting to really come around to the idea of these things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so this Polylith plugin for poetry, it's super cool. So for example, here on your example, you say poetry space poly space info on the terminal on the command prompt. Yeah. And it'll say, hey, look, in here we have two projects made of two components and two bases, the, the, the Lambda project and the Fast API project. And they're made up of these different elements. And it really shows you know, what part of your code is depending on the other ones. It even gives you a, a pretty table. Is this made with yeah. Rich? Yeah, sense? it's rich. And I love it, that it tool. Like, it's so great. Yeah. It's, it's been my <laughs> yeah, new favorite. Yeah. It's favorite tool. It's so good. Yeah. So it's a really nice looking UI that you put together here as well. Yeah. Thanks. I'm really happy to hear, to hear that. Well, how easy is it for people to... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Don't mean to talk over you. Yeah. I just want to mention that what we see here is the, the tooling support for, for the Polylith thing in Python. And, and I decided to make it as a poetry plugin. I have some plans to like break it out of poetry to make it a separate CLI too. Maybe I'll do that in the future, but uh, I thought it was a good fit for poetry since I'm uh, relying on a lot of poetry features. And the, the command there, polyinfo, is showing you uh, an overview of your monorep. And this is my example project with uh, so it's not a lot of code, but the uh, the idea is that you can, you will list all your components and bases. The, the common name for these are bricks. Then you get a sort of an overview of what, what's in that monorep. You can sort of get an idea of what's in there. What does this uh, thing do? And then it's listed per project. So you can see which project is actually using which brick, brick? Yeah, let me just uh, give a little bit of visual information for people listening. So under the brick column, it says we have the logging, we have the messaging, we have the greet API, and we have the messages for Lambda. And then you've got in different columns, the different projects that might be consuming them and little check marks or, or dashes to say using or not using it. It makes it really visually clear how your elements fit together, right? I'm continuously adding commands to, to this uh, tooling. There's also 
you can use this information, uh, the information about the workspace and the individual project to, in your CI to determine if, let's say that you change um, the message component, you do something uh, in it, and then you would uh, want to have the projects that are affected built for that. So the tooling will help your CI to make decisions, should uh, build uh, this project or if it should skip building uh, because nothing has changed. So that's part of the tooling to work. That's pretty interesting because we've had attempts and they've always been like an awesome 80% solution that never quite works, but really good solution, uh, really good tool ideas, I guess, to say, if you change this code, what actually needs to be tested again or what what needs to be analyzed again? If this other part of your system doesn't depend on it, you don't need to run those tests, right? Either if just the file changes, that doesn't tell you anything. You need to look at things like code coverage. What part of the system was touched if this part, you know, by, by, by affected by this at all, right? Those, those are always really tricky. And how do you keep like a history of code coverage to know what to do? And all those attempts I've seen just kind of like, we tried, but we don't really do that. We'll just run the files that change, which is never enough. But this kind of is a, a natural way to express dependencies in that tree to say, okay, if we change the greet API, we see that the Lambda thing doesn't work with it. So we don't need to test anything to do with the Lambda stuff. We only need to test the fast API aspect, right? Yeah, exactly. Is that tooling in place now? Yeah, that's in place now. Okay. Uh, the poly info command, uh, I think it was the, like the first command that I uh, actually added. Then there's a diff command and what did I added? Um, yeah, the latest uh, addition to commands is a check command because um, since you are I was talking about development experience that you're working at in a development project where you have everything, and then you might not touch the project that much. And that means that you, you are, you could potentially forget to include dependencies because as of today, there's no automatic thing yet. I'm planning to, to add that later, but uh, so far you need to keep track of your dependencies and stuff like that. So I added a check command that actually does performs analysis on the source code. So if you, let's say that one of the components uses the, the requests library or something like that, and you don't have it in your dependencies, then it, you would uh, be notified for that particular project. It's very likely that you would discover it anyway in your development environment, but uh, this is an extra check to just make sure once you're about to build something, can I really build this specific project? So it's uh, a few commands, but it will uh, be more commands that are more, more and more useful, I, I guess. Yeah, it looks great. And you have some examples over in the Python polylith examples repository that people can check out. Yeah. Yeah. So is uh, the poetry plugin ready for people if they wanted to use it? I think so. I, I know uh, uh, I haven't. Uh, any stats yet, but I have uh, a couple of users that have uh, contacted me through the GitHub repo and social media that uh, are maybe some of them are just experimented with it and others have, I think they actually are working with it in their like daily work. And I think it's useful. I, uh, I have to uh, re uh, remind myself to contact them uh, uh, re regularly to just check up how, how it goes and Hopefully they will come to to this repo and uh, 
let let me know if something doesn't work as it intended. So, but it's a new uh, tool and. It's I, I probably uh, needs need some more more work on it, of course. So yeah, well, a lot of people will hear about it now. They can come check it out and play with it. Oh, that would be it, great. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure you're taking contributions and PRs, and you wouldn't mind if people oh, yeah, had definitely. some yeah. additions. I would love to to, to have that. Yeah. So cool. so contributions right. are very welcome. Yeah, and you also have really nice examples here. Like you have two videos that show how it works you know 15 minute youtube videos and you've got some pictures and you know well done on that it makes it really easy for people to come and just see like okay is this interesting does it apply to me so good work i do want to make one really quick follow-up quirky out there had mentioned that maybe shallow clones were a better more predictable choice than the partial clones with the filter equals blob in general the people at github are recommending not to use the shallow clones anymore, but to use instead this these um, partial clones because it keeps the history and it can incrementally go back and pull the stuff in as as needed. However, there is one time where you may really want those shallow clones. And the reason I'm thinking of this is you talked about builds and using this to make builds run faster and only focusing on the parts that have changed. If you have a CI, the CI doesn't care about the history of your GitHub project. It just wants the working files right? So you can do a shallow clone and say, just get me only the files on the tip of this branch and then build it. And that could be dramatically faster than saying, give me all five years of history of every single file and reassociate that. So if you're thinking about CI, this shallow clone idea that I was dismissing a little bit is exactly a good choice, I think, because you don't care about version history if you're trying to see if the current version builds or not, right? So. Anyway, just a quick follow-up on that. All right, David, I think we're probably out of time. I definitely encourage people to go check out your poetry plugin. They can check out Polylith at uh, polylith.gitbook.io. Of course, I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. Now, before you get out of here, I've got the two final questions to ask you, of course. If you're going to write some code, if you're going to work on the poetry Polylith plugin, whatever, what editor are you using these days? Well, these days I use Emacs. I really uh, like the tool. Before, before okay. Emacs, I was IDE guy. I, I really liked uh, PyCharm too. But uh, then I decided to learn Emacs and I, um, I'm stuck. I don't want okay. every program language. I'm going to code everything in, in Emacs. Nice. Yeah. Long, long ago, that was my, my very first editor for programming. Oh. Oh, cool. cool. And then, yeah, brings me back to working on Silicon Graphics mainframes, computers doing C++. So notable PyPI package, something could be something we talked about, something else that you want to just tell people about that you thought was awesome, ran across recently. I have to say uh, Rich, because it's such an awesome tool. And when, you, when you're going to develop a CLI and want it to look nice, and yeah, I, I would, Rich is a really, really good tool. There were a lot of visualization features and stuff like that. So that's a fantastic tool. Yeah, good recommendation. There's so much momentum behind Rich these days. And if you're making some CLI developer-oriented tool, just give it a little color, give it a little structure. And something like Rich, you know, even just a little bit of color or, or a little bit of distinguishing, you know, one line of text from the other makes such a big difference in, in being able to use it really quickly and easily. And Rich is probably the best way to do that by far, right? Yeah. 
You should check out uh, my new latest command, Polycheck, because it uses a rich feature that I, well, I'm really happy about. It's silly, but I'm really happy. It uses an emoji to uh, while you're waiting. Fantastic. Oh, yeah. There's, I love emojis. I love emojis in, in CLIs as well. All right. Final call to action. People want to get started with monorepos, with polylith, with some of these ideas we've talked about. What do you tell them? Head over to the, the polylith uh, git repo or the official polylith docs and read about it and see. Also, if you're interested in monorepos in general, check out the other solutions that are out there because there are a lot of uh, different approaches with different kind of focuses that maybe fit your situation uh, best. I'm, of course, pro polylith because I, yeah, uh, develop a tool and really like that. But there's probably tools that are better for a different situation. So just uh, explore, I would say. Right, right. The tools that maybe Google chooses to manage its code base might be the wrong tools that you choose for yours because the scale is so different. Right. Yeah. You might add so much complexity that it, it's not relevant. You know, it makes it really hard, but you don't need that complexity because you've got five projects, not 5,000 projects, right? So yeah, absolutely uh, look, look around is uh, good advice. Okay, David, thank you for being here. It's been a really fun chat. I learned a bunch. Yeah, thank you for, for, for it's really fun to be on, on the show. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Thank you to our sponsors, be sure to check out what they're offering. It really helps support the show. Starting a business is hard. Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub provides all founders at any stage with free resources and connections to solve startup challenges. Apply for free today at talkpython.fm slash foundershub. Stay on top of technology and raise your value to employers or just learn something fun in STEM at brilliant.org. Visit talkpython.fm slash brilliant to get 20% off an annual premium subscription. Want to level up your Python? We have one of the largest catalogs of Python video courses over at TalkPython. Our content ranges from true beginners to deeply advanced topics like memory and async. And best of all, there's not a subscription in sight. Check it out for yourself at training.talkpython.fm. Be sure to subscribe to the show, open your favorite podcast app, and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. We're live streaming most of our recordings these days. If you want to be part of the show and have your comments featured on the air, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at talkpython.fm slash YouTube. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code.